to me, what I saw was it was a battle of. <laughs> let me let me correct something real quick. Your dog is calling you a liar. This is amazing. I'm I'm a huge fan of the dog's well timed. This is the intro moment. But it's the <laughs> intro moment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Plot Devices. We are back from our Thanksgiving food comas. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday as well. Uh, we're here to talk about movies and some TV and nothing else. It's a very special episode. We're not here to talk about, you know, drugs in the city or, you know, violence or anything that special episodes we do. This is a movie special episode. Here to introduce our movie special episode is our panelists for today, Samantha and Corvaya. Sam, how are you doing? Some of these do include drugs, though, Brandon. I don't know about that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> they might in the future. But no, we're all good. Everything is great. Um, I'm glad that we were able to take a little break to enjoy Thanksgiving weekend. And we're here. We're back at it again with the grind. Yes, we are. Also joining us today is Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you today as well? I'm so great. You know, we received a lot of news over the past week involving some of our favorite MCU heroes. Tom Holland continuing on as our Spider-Man. That was just something I wanted our listeners to know. I mean, wait till the very end. We might have some Marvel stuff actually to talk about. But for now, we're going the complete opposite of Marvel direction. Uh, for those of you who haven't read the uh, the title description, this is an all-review show today. We're skipping the news. We're skipping directorial debuts. That'll all be back next week, along with something else. Stay tuned. We'll be announcing that at the very end. Uh, but today, we're only going to basically be doing reviews because it's holiday season. Screener groups are coming. No one knew how to schedule anything this year. So just everything is coming out in droves. We got six film reviews in the docket today, along with the TV thing at the end. We'll get to it. We're going to start off with Netflix's newest, the highly anticipated Jane Campion film, Power of the Dog. Sam, you reviewed this for ASU Odyssey. Uh, give us the synopsis of what is going on with dogs. Yeah, absolutely. It unfortunately has nothing to do with dogs. <laughs> so, but otherwise, um, it's, it's an, it, is, it does have a lot to do with madness. But kind of to Noah's point, though, it, it actually is close to the you know it's close to the topic he did bring up benedict cumberbatch so that was smooth um so with power of the dog in case you don't know what it is like brandon mentioned it's a netflix movie directed by jane campion and um just to stick to the script otherwise i'll go off the rails uh the synopsis reads that he um we follow a charismatic rancher named phil burbank who inspires fear and awe in those around him and uh, when his brother decides to bring home a new wife and this new wife has a son named phil um he torments them phil torments them to no end um until he you know finds himself exposed to the possibility of love so uh, you know that's kind of a riff off the synopsis a lot really happens in there but basically phil is this alpha cowboy like anything that he does phil is played by benedict cumberbatch he is you know like if he goes to take a drink the rest of his ranchers take a drink with him and leave with him and like laugh at all of his jokes so this guy's like an alpha male but then you have his brother played by jesse plemons and it's um he's very much more of like a mild-mannered guy he's easier to get along with thus which is why i think he ends up marrying uh kristen dunst who plays his wife but also their fiance is in real life so that's kind of neat um to see that but then we also have um that son that she has named phil and he is played by cody smith mcphee so those are kind of like your main um four core actors here in this movie it takes place in montana and uh it's a really wild ride honestly there's a lot that happens in it and i would probably categorize this as like a it's like a drama it's definitely like a western drama 
And if I'm not mistaken, it takes place in the 20s as well. So um, it's an interesting period piece in that sense. And uh, yeah, I, I'm really curious to hear what everyone's thoughts are, just because for me, I um, I reviewed it. So I know what my thoughts are, but I'd rather get to them last since I've gone on about the synopsis. So uh, Brandon, just what were your thoughts to start? Yeah, I'll admit, you were actually the first reaction I had heard about the movie. Uh, and it did not make me super... Because all I basically heard was the wave of festival hype and then your opinion, like, okay, sure. Um, and I, I will say I kind of agree with it. Like, this is not fantastic. Like, I wouldn't categorize this in my top 10 of the year. I probably wouldn't even categorize this in my top 20 of the year. Um, I do think it's good, though. I do think it's engaging and interesting and actually has a lot of points to it. For one thing, the performances almost across the board are fantastic. Uh, I've been a fan of Cody's fee for a while, and it's always nice to see him getting media roles. Jesse Plemons is really delightful in this. Thomasine McKenzie pops up for like five minutes as one of the servants of the house, and I had to do a double take of like, oh my, what is she doing here? The last I time. did too. Same <laughs> here. I was like, wait a minute, that was her. <laughs> that was right. Thomas McKenzie. And she's like so unrecognizable. She almost just blends into, and I think that plays like the homogeny of, you know, the old Western Montana sort of aesthetic of it all. Like, I kind of appreciated that. But the true standouts here, Kirsten Dunst is not the best she's ever been, but she's pretty darn good in this. I love her subtlety in this. I love the sort of take on alcoholism that she brings to her character, which is a main trait of it. But the star of the show is Benedict Cumberbatch. He's terrific in this. He embodies the the sense of toxic masculinity and the sense of subtle abuse that the film goes into. It kind of goes into familial trauma, but it it does very much center as like, this guy is responsible for his own problems and the problems of his constituents. And Cumberbatch is just so good. We don't get to see him play, you know, a jerkwad that often. We kind of get to see it sometimes, but not necessarily to this degree. And I was really impressed by it. Uh, also, just another fantastic Johnny Greenwood score. He's so good in this. And actually, if you haven't watched it yet, there's a feature that Netflix put out uh, with him and Jane Campion talking about the different instruments of the score. And it's fascinating. And I, I could just talk, hear him talk about music all day. On the other hand, though, it sags. This is a movie that thrives in its atmosphere. And if you can't get into it, it's going to be slow and boring and drawling and just will not end. Not to the extent of another movie we're going to talk about later. That doesn't weigh worse. But for this, but for Power for the Dog, I should say, for the most part, it had me hooked for the beginning, especially for the end. Like once everything starts to tie together, sort of. I appreciated it, but I totally get where like you and some of the tractors are coming from. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch. Yeah. And um, something I realized, too, in the middle of um, your take I accidentally mentioned that Phil, like the son Phil, because I was reading off a synopsis. No, Cody Smith McPhee, to clarify, plays the son named Peter. So yeah, that was yes. something that I mistakenly put together because I was reading a synopsis and spun off from there. I did the exact opposite of what I said I'd do. And so uh, anyways, um, but no, I, I don't know if I had like a long night or something. But I physically felt myself not off for a split second because, you know, how gravity does its thing when your head falls and you're like, ooh, and you wake up. I unfortunately fell asleep in like smack dab the middle of the movie because I know it was a scene in which Rose was in there. That's uh, uh, Kristen Dunn's character. And she was talking with Jesse. And then I, you know, it was again, split second. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but um, no, honestly, it, it, the movie was really wonderful in cinematography. I thought that it did a great job of setting up the atmosphere. And to your point, Brandon, it's like, you know, if you cannot get into that atmosphere, it's going to be a very, very long movie for you in the middle. But it does start out super strong. So that's why I was excited about it. It was going really well. And then somewhere along the line, it just kind of fell off. And I felt like there were a lot of, like, not to say pointless, but too many scenes that, you know, 
kind of like filled in extra time because this movie definitely dragged on and went on too long, which is kind of the theme for me with 2021's movies for this award season. So many of them are way too long. Um, but the acting, this movie thrives in its acting because Benedict Cumberbatch is amazing in it. And so is Kirsten Dunst too. I mean, both of them together are really wonderful. And I know that I say it all the time because I do personally really like Benedict Cumberbatch's work, but I feel like this is the best he's been like it's going to be kind of one of those i think career defining roles for him um just because of the way he brings this this understanding of what toxic masculinity is in this western era it's just it's so phenomenal to see him play this role amongst his other diverse roles too so you know that's something i'm excited about definitely feel like he's gonna get minimally an oscar nomination for best actor um especially because this movie's so hyped with a lot of other critics but um yeah i feel like this story could have absolutely been better otherwise you know not a bad movie just not one that personally would have been for me yeah, and it's one of those things where like, and again, I'm, I don't know about you, I'm not that big a fan of Jane Campion's work. I haven't seen that much of it. Yeah, same here for me too. I'm, I'm not a big fan of her work really. Like, and, yeah, just because I haven't seen any of it yet. I know, like I really like Top of the Lake, but I haven't seen any of her films because I'm uncultured. Um, but I've heard that a lot of her projects kind of rely on the same thing. There's also too many movies, Brandon. So like, there's a lot of movies that we all got to catch up on. <laughs> I guess that's a small example, but like, I guess my point around there was like, I kind of like same to you. Like, I get the point of what Jane Campion is going for. There's this very kind of idea of, you know, we, we look at like the mountains as like a big like kind of metaphor example in the film of like that idea of the constant, the constant in that world. As is the idea of you know some of the traits that Benedict Cumberbatch's um, uh, the Benedict, that Benedict Cumberbatch's character and later Cody McPhee's character to an extent kind of have in again that vein of you know traditional male values and that idea of the frontiersman and the grittiness aspect of it and I like where she goes with that. The problem is again there's a point in the middle where you don't know what the plot is actually doing, so you can only follow those characters who are kind of being despicable and in their own head for so long. Yeah, and and it's interesting too because sometimes the mean streaks don't always make sense to me, uh, and I mean there are some that do, and and when they make sense, they really hit the nail on the head. Just, I mean, if anyone's seen the trailer, I'm a huge fan of this whistling tune that Phil does to mock Rose because she can't remember how to play a tune on a piano, and so he starts to whistle it back to her, and that's the same whistle you hear in the trailer. He's definitely a guy you look forward to hating, so. I think we'll go ahead and move on to our ratings. So for me, if I'm not mistaken, I think I gave the review like a five because I wrote that review quite a long time ago. I I saw the screener. Gosh, I don't even remember when it was at least a month ago, (laughs) but I, I believe I gave it like five out of 10. Again, for all the reasons I mentioned before, just extremely slow in the middle. And it's, I think it has a hard time telling its story and the message overall in the middle. I might go a bit more positive with it. It's a very solid six and a half for me. Again, the things that work really work. And again, I, I hope Benedict Cumberbatch gets, you know, praise this award season. Johnny Greenwood's gonna, and I don't mind if he gets praise for this or Spencer or gets both. I love his work either way. There is subtext to the movie that I do think is necessary that I think Jane Campion approaches with a degree of heart and reverence for it. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it can only go so far in a movie that is this long, this drawing, and this I won't say offensive, but this irritating at times and as drawling in the middle as it can feel. And again, that middle is just going to take a lot of people out of the movies that did me. So if you want to, it's on Netflix. Uh, I believe it's in limited theatrical run as well. Cool. And then uh, with that, we will go on to our next movie that we have in the lineup. We have Wolf. So Noah, your time to shine. 
Thank you, team. An excellent review for the power of the dog. We love us some Benedict Cumberbatch in this pod. All right. So I'm talking wolf. This is Natalie Biancari's. Uh, it's a quick thriller. It's only about an hour and 38 minutes. It stars George McKay, Lily Rose Depp, the son, I mean, the daughter of Johnny Depp and Patty Considine. And I'm going to keep this short and sweet for you. Um, I saw the screener for this movie this week. Um, it released today, the day of recording. Uh, we're recording on Friday, December 3rd. And so it is now released in select theaters. Um, but what the film involves is uh, George McKay's character is the wolf. He has something called species identity disorder. And from the start of the movie, you're brought into the treatment facility where uh, many of these individuals are grouped together to go through um you know, dropping the identity that they, they are, that they don't have. So um, to better explain it, these are the types of identities that individuals have in this treatment facility. You have a German shepherd, you have a parrot, you have a squirrel, a wildcat, and a wolf. So how exactly do you see these things in a, you know, live action? Like there's no intense cgi here you're not going to get the american werewolf in london you know you're not going to get that intense transformation of george mckay turning into um, an actual wolf okay this is all internal this is them feeling that they embody the character the squirrel needs to run around and you know scurry across the earth and pick up you know little tiny things and munch on them with their hands the german shepherd has to receive praise from those around them because that's the way that um the german shepherd feels appreciated uh the wildcat character who is played by Lily Rose Depp, you really get to see the balance for which these characters are able to maintain their behaving like a human and behaving like this identity that they have internally. So I guess the film really shines for me with the performances. You know, when you get characterization where you're told, okay, my character is, you know, a boy, teenage, teenage age, but I have to be a German shepherd inside of the boy. So how do I embody that? And, you know, that's, that's easier not said than done. It's easier watched than done yourself because the type of characterization and acting that a, a lot of these um, characters bring to the movie is just phenomenal. I found myself like laughing hysterically whenever the parrot would just echo whatever was said around them um, to the point of frustration to the workers who are involved in this facility. Um, there's no looming mystery that makes you go like, you know, like what are they all really hiding or, you know, what are they all trying to escape? Because they're just, they're, there's not that type of problem introduced to the story. The main uh, subject at hand is, hey, here's the individuals who have, um, like I said, species identity disorder. How do we get them to accept that they are a human? You know, they are a boy, they are a girl. Um, how do we get them to accept that and leave this fantasy of um, believing they're a parrot uh, when they can't fly? How do we let them leave that at, at this facility and then go return to the society without uh, these fascinations? Okay, so that's that's the introduction introduction to the story. Um, it's like, where is that going to go? The story really shifts when we move into the night. So the movie has a nice balance of, hey, here are the day phases and here are the night phases. When it's nighttime, that's when you really see Jacob. That is uh, George McKay's character. That's when you really see Jacob embrace his inner wolf because you see the moonlight shining inside of his room that he stays in. They're all like in one in one bedroom cells, it seems, right? And so when the moonlight shines in, he 
is like fighting something internal because he has to howl. He is a, he is a wolf inside. And you feel that when you're watching it, you're like, it, it almost looks painful for him to try and reserve that kind of instinct. Um, and so eventually, you know, during the night, he does roam the facility on all fours, like a wolf and the type of movements he's able to do with his body. Um, I remember reading in some notes that he had been working with like this, um, can I call it a choreographer? That's what I'm going to go with because it was like a movement, a movement coach. Yeah. A movement coach because the way his body was, the way his shoulder blades were poking out of his back, it, you're just looking at it. And I, and I could hear like, you know, gasps in the audience because it looks like there was some kind of editing going on because it, it looks painful. Um, but just kudos to all the performances across the board. Um, one more thing I wanted to mention was in the camera work, literally during the day, you have so much control that is trying to be um, expressed in this facility. And the camera work shows that the, te- the techniques for shooting during the day phases were all uh, very stationary shots. They were all positioned um, and they didn't move. When we transition into night, that's when we get more into the handheld shots. We're following Jacob. Uh, we're following uh, Depp's character, who is the wildcat. We're following her as she roams the facility as well, claiming certain areas as her turf. And that's kind of what uh, sparks the relationship between wildcat and wolf. Um, and seeing that transition and evolve uh, was a highlight of the movie. I thought, you know, this is like from the start, you're already in the facility. So I got a lot of vibes from, um, and I have the director's name here, Yorgos Lantimos directed The Lobster. I got so many vibes from that. And not only just because like, oh, human believing they're an animal and that, you know, yes, that that's like at the top level, but just in the mood of the movie, like the facility isn't flashy. The uniforms are not colorful. You really just receive the color from their performances. And I think that's where it shines. So I was a big fan of this movie. You know, there's, there's not so much to figure out when you go into it. You're not trying to figure out who a killer is or where it's all headed. You're just kind of in it for the ride. And it's a great ride. Honestly, Um, I gave this a seven out of 10 and it's a new writer director that I have penned in my book to keep an eye on it and to continue watching. Uh, Again, that name is Natalie Biancari and uh, this is Wolf. It released today. So I hope you all enjoy it. Whoever, decides to check it out. Thank you for both your review of Wolf and confirming that the lobster does not take place in the same universe. I'm so mad. <laughs> and that should have been the plot twist. Colin Farrell walks in and we finally know the ending because, ooh, how many of you have seen Lobster? Okay, um, let's move on. Uh, we'll go ahead and transition over to an HBO release. It's called King Richard. Tells a story of the Williams' father, played by Will Smith. So I'm um, talking Venus and Serena Williams. So Brandon, Brandon King, what can you tell us over here? Yeah, this is one of the last, uh, at least for the time being, same day, same release uh, pictures for Warner Brothers and HBO Max. It has been out for a couple of weeks. It's been a major awards contender for a while. We tried getting to it. I figured we just talk about it right now and get it over with just so there's, you know, some grit. There's some definitive plot devices word on the matter. Uh, King Richard. This is, of course, directed by uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green, who actually, this is his second film this year. He also directed uh, Joe Bell with uh, Mark Wahlberg from earlier this year, a film that I frankly didn't care for all that much, but I was excited to see this. Um, it stars Will Smith as Richard Williams, the father, some would say overbearing, some would say complicated father of Venus and Serena Williams. Uh, it takes place in the early 90s in Compton, California. He and his wife, Brandy, played by Angelou Ellis, they have five daughters, including Serena and Billy's Venus Williams, who are played by, let me get their actress's name, 
Uh, Sonia Sidney plays Venus, and Demi Singleton uh, plays Serena. Sonia Sidney, you might know if you are an American Horror Story fan. She popped up in there in the uh, Roanoke season. Demi Singleton popped up in uh, Godfather of Harlem alongside um, uh, alongside Forrest Whitaker. I thought I should wrap that up. Anyways, uh, we essentially follow them in the early 90s. Richard essentially has this playbook for all of his girls' life. Some of them are going to be doctors, some of them are going to be lawyers. And Venus and Serena, he essentially has this long, hopeful goal of them becoming tennis stars. But of course, you know, as we all know, Tennis is a mostly white sport. There are very few minority players in the world of tennis, and so it's a rough patch for them going through. They meet a couple coaches, one played by uh, John Bernthal later on, uh, the latter of whom takes them to his retreat in Florida to help them train. And the movie kind of helps them, you know, go through the struggles, go through the standards. I came into this cynical. Uh, I fell for a lot of the controversy that's, you know, I'm sure been going around that you've seen online about the idea of, oh, yeah, we're getting a movie about the Williams sisters, and it's about the male in their life. It's played by Will Smith. Yay. Uh, he's a producer on it. Yay. He's getting all the Oscar buzz. What do you do? You know, I, and I still don't think that this movie escapes that. I think if you were looking for, you know, and this is probably what the movie goes for. If you were looking for the idea of, you know, exploring the Williams sisters in terms of like sisterly bond and like their struggles and like that, it goes through that. And there's more of that than I was expecting. But this is Will Smith's show. Uh, and you know what? It's not that bad for it because he's actually terrific in it. As much as I would love to be the guy being like, ah, oh, he's so overrated in this movie. No, he's actually fantastic. Um, the character's just written really well. I think you get a very clear glimpse into this character who, again, to the outside world and even to members of his own family, you know, Anjanou Ellis is sort of the detractor to a lot of his uh, beliefs. There's a scene in the kitchen towards like the middle of the film where they're kind of going at it of the idea of, you know, oh, you have always ran from things in your life to the next thing. Like, what makes you think, what makes us think you won't run from this? And, you know, he kind of goes back and forth with the idea of, no, like, I care about my family. That's why I'm doing all of these, you know, seemingly innate things. And Will Smith sells all of it. Like, there's this warmness to him. He's always, you know, selling the dialogue with this degree of, you know, Will Smith charisma to him that, you know, we've all grown used to. But it doesn't get tiring, weirdly enough. Uh, but he's not the only one. Like, Ingenue Ellis, I think, is fantastic. John Bernthal gets some really great moments. Uh, Sonia Sidney, who plays Venus, really good. Like, there's a scene between her and Will Smith on the tennis court that you kind of get teased on the trailer. It's one of the best moments in the movie. It is a complete distillation of, like, what that father and daughter relationship slash manager tennis player relationship is like. And I, it's one of my favorite scenes of the year. It's really good. On the other hand, though, it is, you know, like we talked about Power of the Dog, it's a movie that's two and a half hours. It doesn't need to be two and a half hours. Uh, you could have cut this down to two hours very easily. It could have totally worked. The screenplay kind of shafts uh, Serena in a way. Uh, granted, that's kind of what the story was. Venus kind of got her start first before Serena, and they kind of have to, you know, convince the tennis world at large, like, they're both, you know, just as good as each other, let alone better than each other. And it works in that vein, and, you know, the rest of the family kind of gets shafted. There's this, they kind of go into, like, the world around the sisters. Like, it's, it's taking place around the same time as, like, the Rodney King riots and, you know, a lot of, like, social people in the early 90s. And it kind of ties into, you know, what Richard and the daughters are thinking about in that vein, like they'll they'll cut back and forth to like news footage and then it'll go back to Richard and see what he's thinking in that matter. It kind of works, but it's not nearly as powerful as it should be. But again, I, I wish I could say that, you know, oh, this totally fails and it's a disregard to the Williams family. First of all, it's not. The Williams sisters are executive producers on this. They've signed off on it. You know, they've approved of all of this. So, you know, good for them. But at the same time, I also think it's really just engaging. It's a great story about, you know, familial legacy and the, the, bur the burdens that parents have to go through to provide for their kids when the world says it's not good enough. 
And I was really shocked by that emotional through line. So, so if you're looking for like a good, you know, sports movie, good kind of family crowd pleaser of it all, you could do way worse than this. And there are terrific performances in this. Again, all the stuff about Will Smith getting nominated this year, he probably will. You know what? He deserves it. But there's more to it than that. I don't think it's perfect, but it's probably the movie I'm the most positive on today. And I was shocked how much I liked it. Brandon, I do have a question because this involves the Williams sisters. Do you get do you get an image or any kind of um, voice from the real life uh, sisters by throughout the film? Yeah, to, uh, spoiler, like in the credits, there's, you know, kind of behind the scenes of like the original Williams sisters. And, you know, they, they've talked about an interview sort of back and forth. But like the movie is very much the idea of, you know, what Ronaldo Marcus Green and Will Smith and that team have like envisioned this version of the sisters as. And what it is, is it's good, like especially with Venus. But again, like for a definitive picture of them, it's not quite it. And Brandon, do you have a rating for us? Yeah, surprisingly, this is a very light 8 out of 10. I can't believe I'm this positive on this. Uh, it's really enjoyable. It It's too long, but you know what? It flies by with its runtime. The performances are really good. The sports stuff is capable enough. Like, if you're a tennis fan, there's enough to keep you involved. They give, you know, the, term, the terminography and everything. But again, like, at its core, it's a movie about family. It's a movie about... It's the, it's the first movie about family we're talking about today. We'll get to that later on. But... I was really impressed by the dynamic that it approaches it and how much emotion there is. We are still talking family. We're talking kind of sports. We're talking Netflix. Halle Berry directs her first picture for Netflix, which we received news over the last week that it actually landed her a multiple movie deal with Netflix. So we can expect more director uh, Halle Berry in the house. Um, I hope she does a horror. Um, <laughs> and so we are talking bruised. Um, Brandon, if you don't mind, could you introduce bruised for us? Yeah, so like you mentioned, this is Halle Berry's directorial feature debut. Uh, she stars in it as well. She stars as Jackie Justice, who is a former UFC fighter. Uh, this is a slight spoiler. The very start of the movie is we see her losing slash forfeiting a fight. We're never exactly clear at the very start of it, but needless to say, we can cut to what seems like a few months later after this. She has been living with her boyfriend, Desi, who has been played by uh, Adam Kanto, if you're, uh, if you're familiar with his work. They have this kind of back and forth, mainly toxic, but also business savvy relationship. He has become her manager in sort of these, you know, underground fights, so to speak. One day, a promoter for uh, for the Invicta FC, which is a women's fighting league, played by Shamir Anderson from Winona Earp. He pops up, sees her fight and is like, hey, you're amazing. You should go back into the UFC. And she says, OK, basically very reluctantly. So we start to get this sort of training montage, Rocky style thing between uh, between her, between her trainer, and also between Sheila Atim, who plays Budokan, who is one of the trainers at the gym she goes to train at, and Stephen McKinley Harrison, of course, from Dune, Lady Bird, a bunch of other things. He pops up as sort of the, you know, old veteran trainer as well. On top of that, we also get a sort of dueling plot with Jackie's long-lost son, uh, who in this movie is played by Danny Boyd Jr. Uh, his name is Manny. He has witnessed trauma in his life. He doesn't really speak. He barely eats. He doesn't really trust Jackie or Desi as much as, you know, his late father did. But they sort of start to form this bond. They get into trouble with um, with Jackie's mother, who she's also estranged from. There's a whole subplot going on with that. But it is mainly about Jackie moving forward with the, you know, with her fighting career, sort of restarting that and learning how to become a mother in the process and kind of, you know, coming to grips with her past, so to speak. Uh, Noah, I want to go over to you first. Did you have any expectations going in to see Halle Berry directing this? And beyond all that, what did you think of Bruce? I'm an MMA fan. <laughs> I, you know, I think I am. My dog disagrees. Um, no, I, I would consider myself like a, 
I, I was always entertained growing up. I think with cage fights, I never understood like why, but you know, obviously I can look at the fist fly and go, woohoo. Um, but this was to me, what I saw was it was a battle of, <laughs> let me, let me correct something real quick. Your dog is calling you a liar. This is amazing. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the dog's well-timed. This is the intro moment, but it's the <laughs> intro moment. Uh, honestly, I couldn't get enough. I think that Halle Berry, I have no doubt over her, um, over her performance ability. I think even just watching this, uh, it wasn't something I was anticipating, like I said, because I'm not a huge sports person. And I'm also, um, I, I don't know. I think just something about it. I just, I didn't know what to tie myself to. But when, once I knew that we were going to talk about it on the pod and that it was her debut uh, directing, that's what more so leaned me into it. Um, although because of her star power, I will go see Moonfall. Um, but that's not on the subject. I couldn't get enough of her acting. It was heartbreaking. I think that any scene that involved her connection uh, or her estranged kind of relationship with her son was so hard to watch, right? Because this is this is a child who she didn't imagine herself exactly raising, you know, after his father was killed, that's kind of what introduces the son into her life. And this is like in the first 15 minutes. So it's not entirely a spoiler. This was a solid ride. Yes, it was two hours, but I felt like it had enough moving, moving with it. Um, In the final fight, you know, my mom's a big Rocky fan. So I did get those moments of like, of course, we're going to turn to who's, who's watching the fight at home. And, and we know who that is. And then uh, you get all these, all these who's in your corner moments when she's in that, that final cage. And I've always seen a lot of emotion come from my parents in watching these types of scenes. So I found myself getting emotional too. Uh, and I didn't expect that for this movie. So, you know, I guess I was kind of, uh, I was kind of side. I was swept away. Um, Sam, what'd you think? Honestly, I really liked Bruce a lot. <laughs> I, I thought it was a pretty strong directorial debut for Halle Berry, and I really had no expectations going into this. I, you know, when it comes to like MMA fighting style kind of movies like that, I it's not like I'm a huge fan, not like I'm a huge hater, kind of indifferent about them so far. Um, but this, I, I was honestly a real fan of. Um, there were a couple times, like you know, small small little ticks in the movie. Like I felt like the plot was kind of distracted deciding between whether or not it was like a sports centered movie or like this family drama with, um, with Halle Berry's character trying to grapple with her son coming back into her life. She's having a rough patch right now where she's still trying to figure out like who she is, especially because what caused her to leave the ring is Brandon kind of teased in the beginning. It's like, you know, you find that out later and, I just think it's really nice to see that progression with her character go from having no confidence in herself, kind of having this rough patch to building that back up again to this really nice comeback story. So I, I thought that Halle Berry did a really good job personally. And I also really like Sheila. Is it a team? Um, Sheila team. Um, I, I think really so, did yeah. enjoy. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Cause sorry if I'm mispronouncing any names, but I really liked Budokan as a character as well. So I thought the two of them were really great together. And I cannot talk enough about Danny Boy Jr. because mm. he has been in so many movies lately. His acting is amazing. And I mean, like you said, the, he doesn't speak at all, but he knows how to really capture your attention because of his physical mannerisms and his acting um, throughout the film. So I, oh my gosh, my heart melts for the kid. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, like my take is that I honestly really liked it a lot. First of all, I was surprised when I looked up Danny Boy Jr. Like, oh yeah, he has been a lot. I just assumed he was a newcomer. 
yeah just to fill the audience in for a little bit he was in stranger things for like a small small role and then we also have him in the underground railroad tv series recently uh he's also been in good girls and um watchmen, and watchmen as well oh totally good for him um i like this that's good um i i think i'm probably the least positive of all three of us um i i will start off by saying Halle Berry as the performer has never been better. Uh, and I include, you know, Monsters Ball and John Wick and, you know, the countless things of, you know, stuff that she has done. She, she's always been a terrific actress. And here she gets to play this really, again, like messy, complex, beaten down character who you really get a shot to root for. Like it falls into the boxing movie tropes, obviously. Uh, and this is coming from someone who, you know, primarily follows, you know, that sport from movies and not necessarily the actual sports to so take what I am saying with a, giant grain of salt um but like i like where it takes those story points i like where it takes i like where it takes her character especially with the idea of her son because one of the best points in the movie you know i felt was that scene in the rain when you know when manny first shows up manny is her son's name when manny first shows up on her door and you know her boyfriend and her mom are fighting and you just see the camera pan over to her and she has like her mouth a gasp of just like the, the total shock of it all and it just continues for another like several minutes, even as the story is continuing forward. And I was really impressed by that. Like another filmmaker would have tried to emphasize dialogue, but no, like Halle Berry, like for one thing, probably recognizes her strengths as an actress, but it's another thing, like I think recognizes the importance of a scene and her, you know, a talent to do that. The physicality as well is great. Like the training sequences are great. The, the actual song choices are actually pretty cool. Like her is in there. Like there's some really great song choices in there, I thought. I thought I heard Flo Millie, but I didn't look it up. I did hear Flo Millie. Thank you. The soundtrack um, was amazing. So especially anyone who's into hip hop, that was great. Yeah, that, that her song is going my playlist later. Um, I will say, though, as a director, and I will also put in the screenplay as well, but I think as a director, this gave me vibes of, did either of you see uh, mid-90s, Jonah Hill's first movie? Yeah. Not me. It gave me vibes of that as, an, as a thing of like, this on its core concept is a great idea. And there's some really great subtext in there and really great emotional beats in there. But you have a director in there who is so focused on getting the performances out of the actors that they forget about, you know, some of the things of the narrative structure or some of the things of like, you know, where the setting is or where the actual through line of the movie is going. And like you mentioned briefly, Sam, I do think it's a bit of a default in the movie of trying to balance the, you know, the sports movie hoorah type structure with this very kind of gentle, you know, kinder stuff with her and her son. I think there's ways of handling this that that I think a more seasoned director could have done. And that's not to say that she does it poorly. Like, I did, like, genuinely appreciate where it was going. I just think that it's a solid first movie. I just wanted more from it consistently. We're ready for ratings. I'll get started with that. Uh, I'm going to say a very light six. Uh, and I, again, that's because Halle Berry is such a talented performer in her own right. She can make this character work. And I think, again... When the physicality comes to blows, she can handle it. When the emotional comes to blows, she can handle it. And there is this central connection in the movie that I really did appreciate. Just as a whole, and for, again, a movie that is two and a half hours and does not need to be, what are we doing, 2021? Uh, I really don't think it needs to be. And I don't think she can quite handle everything in this script. But it's solid. Like, if you enjoy sports movies with a good emotional punch, it's there. I just think there's better made ones. I'm giving this a setup seven out of 10. Um, yes, I agree, Brandon. Yes, it follows a formula and it's not very like distinct for what Halle Berry can showcase with her director style. Like there's, there's not a, a signature here that I'm, that I'm, uh, re- that I'm realizing that I'm identifying. Um, that being said, I think I 
can quote myself when I just said, uh, watching my parents value these sporting and like boxing movies kind of made me lift it up higher. Um, but I think it's easy to watch and I, I did find myself enjoying it by the end. So seven for me actually be a little bit more positive i'm gonna go with like a solid eight i don't know why i did really enjoy the movie a lot i kind of fell into some of the albeit cliche moments i i liked them uh so i i thought it was like a solid directorial debut at least from Halle Berry. i'm excited to see what else they'll do um together with her and netflix uh yeah. and yeah well we'll see what happens they have a deal what else will she work on i truthfully i agree with you i can't wait I feel like it would be something completely different. Like, I don't think we're going to get a sport movie again. I think it'll be something totally Let's different hope. from that. <laughs> Bru- Bruce becomes the next Rocky. <laughs> Hot take. Uh, so I guess with that, we'll, we'll go on ahead to our, our next review. So we have House of Gucci. This one is also a really highly anticipated movie for all the awards talk and the stacked cast. And so, um, Brandon, if you don't mind kicking us off with the synopsis, um, we'll go from there. Ridley Scott is back after a month. We didn't go long enough without him, I should say. Um, yeah, right. I'll tell you what I think about this. House of Gucci. Uh, this is based on... The Sarah Gay Forda novel, The House of Gucci, a sensational story of murder, madness, glamour, and greed. It follows, uh, I should once again say, directed by Ridley Scott, produced by him as well. It stars Lady Gaga as Patricia Reggiani, later Patricia Gucci, uh, in the early 80s? No, sorry, the late 70s, I apologize. Uh, it follows uh, Lady Gaga as Patricia Reggiani, uh, eventually Patricia Gucci, in the late 1970s in Italy. She is working under her father's business as a truck driver, truck manager, so to speak. Uh, and then at a party, she meets uh, she meets a member of the Gucci family, Maurizio, played by uh, Adam Driver, who's kind of like very bookish, shy, doesn't really take after the Gucci name like the rest of his family. But she, you know, clearly knows who he is, where his status is, and she wants to get in on it. She's also just genuinely infatuated, but there's kind of like this dueling idea of it. Anyway, she gets looped into the remainder of the Gucci family. Uh, and we follow his father, Rodolfo, played by uh, Jeremy Irons. We follow his eccentric cousin, uh, Paolo, played by Jared Leto. We follow his uh, uncle, uh, Aldo, played by Al Pacino, and sort of the rest of the extended Gucci family. And essentially, the story is kind of one part a love story between Patricia and Maurizio and their, you know, weird, initially great, then kind of toxic relationship between one another. And then also the idea of, you know, the Gucci's as this prominent fashion family, you know, as an empire, as a legacy. And where does Patricia sort of fit into that? And where could things get really, really bad from there if they do? Um, Sam, over to you first. We saw this together, so I kind of know your reaction going into it. Uh, what, first of all, did you get around to, uh, the last duel just for, just for uh, clarification? No, I haven't yet, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's one of those movies that's staring me down from a distance. Cause I do want to see it. <laughs> um, but no, I, I haven't. Well, I, getting off, cause I was going to say, you know, Ridley Scott has had a very prolific year. He has, you know, not kept his mouth shut on a lot of things. Uh, but certainly from a filmmaking perspective, what did you think of House of Gucci? There were a lot of things to think about for it. Um, and I feel like oh, yes. our our opinions kind of line up in a similar way. But with House of Gucci, it's just I, I really enjoyed similar to Power of the Dog, like beginning and ending were really good, in my opinion, like they were engaging. But then that middle, this movie does not know how to end a scene and end like or not an end, excuse me, a scene goes on for so long that it's just insanely long and i i get that house of gucci it's a movie that focuses in my opinion more on the family as an empire so it might not necessarily have a main character if you will but for the purpose of 
you know, making it easier for everyone to understand. We have Patrizia and we have Maurizio for our lead too. But um, I don't know. I just feel like there were times when the story felt very messy and we didn't focus on certain parts of the movie as much as I thought they would. Like, you know, if anybody were to look up the events in this plot, they are based off a true story. And I know that we had similar thoughts on this, Brandon, that we were kind of surprised that, like, you know, a trial scene didn't go on for multiple scenes that, you know, didn't really focus on the um, what followed after a specific action. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. It was just kind of interesting. I didn't know where to expect the movie to go. But I will say that Lady Gaga is amazing in it, though. That I could also see why people are gunning for her to get some kind of Best Actress nomination. I could absolutely see that. And she's really wonderful in it. Um and, and and in times like very jarring too, like her performance is really arresting, especially in her moments of stress. Because Patrizia is honestly a very shallow character, um, and I think she loved, like you know, she she loved the family in her own twisted way. But it's just she has a funny way of showing it, as one would see if they see the movie. Um, but yeah, I, no, I believe you saw it too. So I, I want to know what your thoughts are, because um, just what do you what do you think of House of Gucci? All right, let's run through this quickly, okay? I'm doing the good, the bad, and ugly. The ugly, Get your tea. The, the ugly, the runtime. Do not, do not walk me into a 9.50 showing of House of Gucci, where it is two hours and 38 minutes. I couldn't even tell you when I walked out of that theater because it felt like the next week. Yes, scenes do not know when to end. And I think that... Ooh, I'm a little angry. I'm not angry, honestly. But let's talk about Paolo's character, okay? Jared Leto, I don't have to give him praise for being an actor. I know that everybody at large respects him as a great actor. I can see that. I did not care for his character. He felt so punchline-y and comedic and squishy. And that's not talking his prosthetics. Like, that's only talking about, like, his presence on screen. It just felt like he was somebody to pick up, bounce off the wall, and then wait till it comes back. Because... I don't know. He didn't feel like a threat. Um, Let's talk about the bad. I'm going to say the bad is in some of the writing given to Patricia's character. This is Lady Gaga's character. Um, So many moments did I feel stopped because I felt like the script was organized, uh, orchestrated. I don't know the word. Um, It was organized to give her these one-liners that would fit for the trailer. You know, don't miss or it's time to take out the trash. But the way that the characters respond to to those statements when they're said, just make them feel like, where is this coming from? Like, this is a woman who really is thinking internally and only on her own um, regard. And so who knows? Maybe this ends up being some kind of backhanded compliment that I'm giving them. Moving on to the good. I absolutely loved Adam Driver in this and Lady Gaga. Um, I thought both of them performance-wise and what the actors were given and what they were able to express out the park. I love Adam Driver. Like, I loved him before. Love the man even more. And Gaga, this house appreciates Gaga. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say this house pretty often on the pod. Uh, so we should keep a tally. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I have to say. Did I find myself enjoying the story? Of course. I left the theater in awe because I go, did this really all happen? Like, is this really how the house of Gucci evolved? And so I went home and I watched the Miss Mojo video over what happened to the, the real house of Gucci and uh, was fascinated by all the details that were not included in the movie, but uh, plenty of them are. Uh, and I mean, with that, I think I've said what I needed to. <laughs> what other comments do you both have? Brandon, back to you. Let's circle back. 
as I said to Sam walking out of the movie, this movie infuriates me. Uh, not because it's terrible, not because it's my worst of the year. Like, it's not even close to that. Um, but it just, uh, Ridley Scott, I need to have words with this man about his notion of relying on actors to extend stories that don't need to. He had this problem with The Last Duel. He had this problem with, um, oh God, uh, the Christian Bale Moses movie, uh, Exodus, Exodus, Gods and Kings. The same problem with that. He has had this problem for years. Basically everything minus The Martian I have had issues with. And that's only because The Martian is fun. And this tries to be, like it tries leaning into that element of camp. It tries leaning into that element of, you know, true crime and trying to merge the two together. And sometimes it works. It has its moments. Um, like, it, And I will contend, Jared Leto is in a completely other movie, but one of my favorite moments of the movie is the scene between him and Jeremy Irons in the, uh, in the fashion hall. Like, I actually thought that was a cool scene. It kind of gives precedence to both of them. It establishes the very strict hierarchy of Gucci as well as the idea of, you know, no, creativity should be, you know, let burst and everything. And it gets ruined by the fact that it's, you know, taking a piss out of everything, literally, because he, you know, does the thing for the sweater. Um, but again, it does what it does. And what it does is a lot. Uh, I will completely concede to both of you. Pastels and Browns. Yes, thank you. The, yes, if, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Lady Gaga is great in this. And she is, I think, the only great thing in this. Uh, due respect to Adam Driver, he is doing what he can. The problem is, and I, I again, I mentioned this, you know, earlier in my tweet, which is that thing of, beyond the fact the movie doesn't end, it has this problem that, slight spoiler, halfway through the movie, it kind of becomes where it was Patricia's story. It becomes Maurizio's story. And you kind of forget for certain chunks of that second half that like, oh yeah, we were just following Patricia as a character and like her whole journey into, you know, yes, her relationship with Maurizio, but also her idea of, you know, I am going to go into this power structure from nothing and take it down from the inside and show how fallible this is and show how malleable it is to my tastes and my experiences, which is a really fascinating character arc. And like, I love that from her. And like, again, Lady Gaga is, you know, bursting at the seams with charisma. She can do this in her sleep. So it works. Adam Driver usually can. And like, for whatever I have to say about The Last Duel, go check that out in our review at the podcast. He is trying, but he can't quite make that sort of heel turn that Maurizio has in the second half kind of work. Like, it should work, because he is that talented, but it doesn't. And the problem is the rest of the cast isn't pulling their weight. Like, Al Pacino is on, you know, basically autopilot. Jeremy Irons is doing something. Jared Leto is in a totally different movie. Salma Hayek gets no screen time, beyond the fact that, again, Ridley Scott just doesn't know when to make this movie end. You know, it, it's not that thing of like, it's so bad, like the script is so hammy. It's none of those things. It actually is investing. And there's like legitimate commentary on, you know, legacy structures and, you know, families with like they, they even make comparisons to the um, uh, the Medici families of like old Italy, of old Italy. And that idea of like the Gucci's being the modern equivalent. And that's cool. And it works in the first half. And then they just forget about it for like classic, like, you know, true crime, light succession style, you know, uh, corporate drama. And it doesn't work for me and it just goes on way too long i'm sorry to rant but there's just a lot of it and i had to get it out of my system no i feel like we've said everything i need to say because it's like I, I guess i was expecting so much more because i was really excited about it i, I like all the actors who were involved all the, in the lead roles and it's just like i think that the characters a lot of them lost their purpose in the middle of the story and maybe that's really scott's thing where he kind of lost what their purpose was as well. So I don't know. I kind of felt that in here and it felt scatterbrained that that's just kind of my last thought. And I'm, I'm good with ratings. So for me, um, I had more fun with it 
in House of Gucci than Power of the Dog. So for me, I think I would say like a six. I was going to give this a five, but that means I put it below Halloween Kills. I'm going to give it a six. And we all know how you feel about that. Oh, yeah. Um, here's the thing. I wish I could still be that guy to be like, oh, the last duel is, you know, not all that great. Yeah, screw your hype. And yet, yeah, now the last duel is a masterpiece in comparison. Like, at least that movie is interesting and has like actual structure to it and is letting his actors do its thing. This is existing and it exists for too long and it doesn't know what to do with its structure or to do with its tone or with its writing. And it's leaving it to the actors who, again, Lady Gaga is doing great work. Adam Driver is trying. And, you know, Darius Wolski and, you know, the technical team are working overtime to make this look great. And it doesn't work. And I, I wish it did. I really do wish I had liked this more. It's in theaters right now. If you want to check it out, uh, it may get some Oscar buzz. Who knows? The Golden Globes are probably going to go all over this because this is exactly their thing. But you know what? I, we're all, you know, we're not the greatest supporters of it. I was going to say, I, I, I mark my words, I think it will get some kind of recognition. Something will happen. And I'm, I'm going to guess, you know, if anything, just a couple nominations. But it doesn't strike me as the kind of movie that would win, win anything. It, it'll, it'll get costuming. I just saw Serrano or Cyrano. I don't know if, that, if this beats it out. I, I think hair and makeup, potentially, yes, with Jared yeah, Leto's. Maybe that too. You know, um, we are moving on. To Encanto. We are introduced to the Madrigal family. So who are they? Uh, this is a movie called Encanto. This is uh, Walt Disney Animation's latest. It released um, just this past week, and we've been waiting to talk about it. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Let's meet the family. Who is the Madrigal family? Well, they are a Colombian matriarchy led by the grandmother who fled her homeland and received a miracle in the form of a magical candle uh, when she fled. Um as the family grows, you know, the, the, she's the grandmother, so there are generations of children beneath her. But as the family grows, there's a ritual which grants superhuman abilities to each of the Madrigals. But what happens when we follow Mirabel, who is the first of the Madrigals to not receive a gift? So she has sisters who are perfect because they can sprout flowers with the flick of their hand, or they're so strong they can lift bridges, they can lift donkeys. Uh, she has cousins who can shapeshift, cousins who can do other things that I, you know, we'll, we'll save the surprise for you because there is some, uh, there's not some, but a lot of fun had in this movie. Um, as Mirabelle is the main character, we're focusing on the fact that A, she is, uh, I would say like young adult, like, she, I don't think that Mirabelle's a teenager. I would see her more of like as a young adult and she doesn't have a gift, but what happens when she and her family realize that cracks are starting to form in the house? Like what is, um, I guess, what is putting out the, the Madrigal family? What is breaking their home? Uh, and that's the main, that's the main conflict of the story. So with that being said, uh, us three, we did all see it. I believe that uh, Sam in has the review for Odyssey online. And I am correct. Okay. So Sam, why don't we all go ahead and transition to you first. Uh, really introduce us with some of your top level reactions to this film. Um, I know for one, uh, you and I had an early conversation talking about how uh, both of our reactions, you know, maybe we're on the same page. Maybe we have a conflict ourselves. So what's going to break our house of not Gucci? Uh, Sam, take it away. In retrospect, they're small things, but I will be as bold to say that this is one of my least favorite recent Walt Disney Studios animated movies. I know it's kind of a big thing, but it's big because I'm a huge 
Disney fan in general, grew up with it. I was one of those kids, but yeah, I, I was kind of surprised. And I think, you know, to not go into spoilers in the moment for my initial review, I just feel like the ending really counteracted what the entire message was trying to give. And that for some reason really ruined it for me hard. Um, but overall, like, I mean, Maribel is such a, a likable character. I really like her a lot. And I think that, you know, it's really easy to follow her story and how she feels. That's something that's really done well in this movie, especially in the plot. All of the, you know, the members of the Madrigal family all have such interesting powers too. And honestly, I'd say that a lot of them play a big role in, you know, in the movie itself. Um, you know, whether that's like, actually helping out the town physically and showing to what extent they help out or, you know, when it comes down to the, their relatability, because um, I was even seeing some people had comments like, Oh, I have a sister that's very similar to um, the strong one because it's like, Oh, she's the oldest. She feels like she has to hold the weight of the world on her shoulders and make sure everything goes right. So I just think they're a really relatable family. And so my, my big problem just was again, that, that plot device there, there's our title um the the plot device like near the end where we're talking about you know being your own person and kind of discovering that for yourself and i had another thought and i literally just like forgot it did it involve bruno's character was that it we don't talk about bruno um no i just wanted to mention the the music too because i really appreciate the music that's something that i could respect because they really tried to go with so many different inspirations because you could definitely feel the latin american influence in the music and i really appreciate it but i just felt like sometimes they were kind of disjointed and like kind of different from the rest of the vibe in the movie um and i I think these are some of the least memorable songs i could you know like think of from lin-manuel um so i I mean again it's not necessarily not because he's extremely talented has created tons of memorable things but like usually when i see a disney musical i have those songs stuck in my head the only thing I had stuck in my head was the Madrigal family song in the beginning because it starts so strong. But otherwise, I I don't remember the others very well. But um, otherwise, you know, that's kind of my take. I've gone on and on. So, um, Brandon, I'll kick it off to you because we haven't heard from you yet on uh, Encanto stuff. I'm excited to hear your take because you've been hyping this up for a, wi- a little while now of just like, Encanto is this thing. And I'm like, well, what's the thing? Should I say it? Should I spoil it? We'll get into spoilers in a minute. Okay, yeah, I'll tell you and I'll tell you all in a moment then. I will get my take as such. I agree with you about the music. I need to let the music sit with me, both the songs from Lim and Well, who I respectfully enough does not have a role in this movie. Like more often than not, when he is involved in the movie, he somehow has to take the spotlight and he doesn't in this. And I was really res- I was really responding to that. Um, even though I love the guy. Uh also Jermaine Franco's score. I didn't know we had a female composer on this, and I love that. We need more female composers, and I need to sit with her score because I really want to grow to love it. But you're right, a lot of the songs kind of come and go, and there's a large chunk where the songs don't come into play, as happens with a lot of Disney musicals recently. It's that thing of, you know, you gotta have them consistent, and they gotta be consistently catchy, and you're right. The, the Maribel family, fantastic. We don't talk about Bruno, a bop. The rest of them, I don't know how much they're gonna stick with me. Um, and Stephanie Beatrice is amazing in this. Uh, she's so much fun. She, she is embodying this kind of, you know, modern stereotype, archetype, I should say, of, you know, lead female princess-esque characters that we see, not just from Disney, but I think, you know, animation as a whole in the last number of years, 
of, you know, very imperfect, very, you know, kind of out there, but also genuinely lovely and heartfelt. And God, she just brings so much to this. Maybe it's just because I'm so used to her in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but I just really grew to love her in this. And she just has this great complexity, this back and forth with her and uh, her and her abuela, who is also fantastic, by the way. I love, I won't say just yet, but I love the revelations that come out about her later to a degree. I'm sure we'll debate about that. Uh, I will totally agree. It doesn't use its best material. Like the best stuff about the movie is when the family is just being the family. And I feel like the thing about the candle and the house and, you know, the overwhelming stakes, when that came to play, I literally just felt myself going, oh, we're doing this. And I, I forgot about the trailers because I, I was so wrapped up in the family dynamic of it all. I like the thing with the powers and, you know, the magic and everything and just how different every member of the family is. I love um, uh, Diane Guerrera as uh, Isabella. And I love what she kind of brings to the table later on. Uh, but I just love that element. So the overarching plot of it all, you're right. It kind of brings the movie down a notch and it forces the movie to contend with things it shouldn't have to. Uh, but I was genuinely impressed by this. Like, I liked it. I had a lot of fun with it. Is it one of my favorites in recent years? No, because uh, Ryan the Last Dragon came out the same year, and it's a masterpiece. Uh, but this is genuinely enjoyable. No, like yours uh, are the most positive out of all of us. We need some positivity in here, so please enlighten us. <laughs> okay, here I come fluttering in on my pedals. Um, so <laughs> You've got the good hair for it, so just throwing that out there. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, so here are some bonuses, okay? I'll, I'll shout out the biggest bonus um, first, and that was uh, Maluma gets a role. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But Maluma is in this movie, surprisingly enough. Um, he plays a romantic interest of the perfect daughter. Um, and so surprisingly enough, though, Maluma doesn't get a song, and I found myself waiting for a song. Um, Sebastian Yatra is another... Um, Hispanic artist who I who has an emotional song when we get that flashback. I don't know if you two remember, but oh my gosh, I've saved that one to my playlist because it is so emotional. Um, but let me talk about some wins for me. Uh, one in particular was singing about family pressure and hearing that from an older sister. Um, I have an older sister. And so I guess I connected there and I found r- relatability there. Um, there's so much that the oldest member in a family really puts on their shoulders in order to just I don't know, tough it out for the rest of their siblings, or at least that's what I felt that uh, the sister was singing about. And so um, it's, I, I think it's as true as ever. Like I have friends um, who are also the eldest, oldest in their family. And uh, that song, that song sticks with me. That one has to do with uh, family pressure. And then just the fact that Mirabelle, yeah, she is really a great character to follow. We don't have like the naive, at least for us older audience members, right? Um it's fun for the kids to to have the little the little characters who can speak to animals and you know things of that nature but when we when we can follow somebody who is really at that stage in their life i just i find that to be such a such a uh, a loud point that i don't see a lot of uh movies speaking on that being said i don't think that any of the locations that we're taking to are so grand that this needed to be a wide release i think that it's very low stakes and it should have been even a show called like the Madrigal family or something like that. Right. Cause I can see that being more rewarding episodically understanding each member and the weight that they carry um, literally and just uh, emotionally. And the, the grandma, I, I recognized her voice once she started singing and I looked it up. She is the grandma from in the Heights as well. So uh, you see Lin-Manuel, you know, carrying over different uh 
different artists that he has worked with in the past. But this really was a win for me. It, it did touch me, you know, it, it hit the, hit those core memories. Um, and uh, I just found myself, yes, bumping. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno on my way home, uh, along with um, no pressure, I think is what it's called. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I don't think that um, it needed to have such a rift or, or at least the rift that came at the end didn't didn't feel like it was necessary with the story that they were introducing um it could have just been centered on the family yes the uh, the great olga melodies from uh in the heights and also from the stage version does the uh, singing voice uh maria botero does the actual acting for it i did want to add like another positive thing that the animation is still really good like i'm still a fan of disney animation just aiming to be as realistic as possible because I felt like even there was a time when Mirabel was, um, you know, hit with some sand. If you see the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. And the sand like literally sticks to her face and falls off very gently, but still stays on some pieces of her face as she sits up. And it's just, to me, that felt so nice. Her curls were really beautiful. So it's just like things like that. I just, I thought I were really cool. So that was a positive. I forgot to mention. I do want to dive into spoilers just real quick before we actually hop into our, you know, secret ending thing. Uh, Sam, I want to just get your uh, spoiler discussion for a minute, uh, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Noah actually teased one of them unintentionally. I did not think the grandmother needed to be an antagonist all of a sudden. I felt like that came out of left field so hard because I got that she was putting a lot of pressure on the family, that for sure. And even like, oh, Mirabelle, you could go over to the side and that's fine. Like, you you could hang out out of this. Don't let it. Don't ruin Antonio's night. Like I I saw that, but I didn't think it was enough to be antagonistic. Where they had this major fight in the climax. I don't know why. I just didn't think it was that necessary. And this could have absolutely just been something about the family itself. And um, I also was very surprised with how how limited the story was in location because. If you watch the trailer, it looks like we're going to all these far off places. And then as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, these are all in the middle of their songs. You're just being transported into a new area through their songs. Otherwise, they're staying in this tiny town in Colombia, which, again, beautiful. Animation's great. The Encanto's fun. But like, we don't even get to know too much about the villagers in a way until the very end. Um, and so it's like, I don't know. It's just it's very localized in their own area and so that's something that surprised me not necessarily a bad thing just surprised me and the the true thing that i was teasing earlier was i think that that family should not have gotten their powers back i think they should not have gotten that because it's like i don't know you you follow this protagonist who doesn't have powers at all you kind of teach her how how amazing she is on her own and then it just kind of falls flat and honestly, I was just really surprised, too, that at the end, this is what I was teasing earlier, that the family got their powers back. I mean, you go and take the time throughout this entire movie to give Mirabel the spotlight, to give the person, the only person in the family without powers, the spotlight. And it's like, you're you're amazing on your own. Like, that's kind of the message that I got in addition to the familial message and familial importance. But it's just like... I don't know. It just felt like it was counteractive to what we saw throughout the entire movie. And then it's like, oh, yeah, let's give the family all their powers back because they're provi- they're the providers for the entire village. And so I don't know. To me, that just that kind of like ruined the movie for me in a way because it just didn't feel right. And maybe I'm just so stuck in Disney's like usual formula over the years where they try to do something similar to that where it's like oh no you're perfect on your own turns out 
none of them get their powers back. Or in the end, what would have been more melodramatic is Mirabelle gets powers at the end. That would have been probably more on brand. But either way, you know, those are just some of my thoughts on there. And I've been rambling now without breathing. So uh, I will leave it to you guys now for somebody, anybody, please. Bueller, pick up the, the mic. I was just going to say, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because one, I disagree. I actually like what they do with the grandma, but two, <gasps> you mentioned, you mentioned, and I'll get it, but you mentioned the thing about, you know, taking, taking and giving away powers. They've been doing that since at least Princess and the Frog, where Princess and the Frog, Frozen, you know, you can make an argument for Moana, you know, they can argue for Riot. They've been doing this for a while with Disney animations of doing that thing of, here is this fantastical thing that is part of the characters. Uh oh, it's gone. Characters will develop and then they get it back. So, like, I don't mind that as much. No, that's actually a really good observation, too, because those were very specific. And I'm glad that you brought those up. But no, I I, I really... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, because I was going to say, like, yeah, I was thinking as she's saying that, like, that sounds familiar. And sure enough, it is in the last decade of Disney. Um, But, like, I I don't mind that at all. Like, But the thing with the grandma is that I don't consider her an antagonist at all. Like, I don't think this movie has an antagonist other than, like, family anxiety and like legacy burden and stuff like that. Like, I think the antagonists of this are much more metaphysical and metaphorical than the movie actually gives it credit for. Obviously in contrast to Mirabelle, yes, she is the opposing force, but like, I don't consider her a villain. That honestly, that's a fair take because I know that like, that is one of the goals that creators had here for this movie, which by the way, there are a lot of writers attached to this. I think there are about yeah. eight different people who have co-written this script. And so that's why there were a couple of times where I felt like things were thrown in near like the last half. But um, no, we to should- be fair, I do appreciate your, your thought on it, Brandon, because it's like, you know, one of the points they were trying to make was these, you know, these pressures on family and the pressure to be somebody in a family or, you know, the fear of getting lost amongst your family because they're, you know, somebody way outshines you. So, you know, that is a very metaphysical thing that was brought up in the movie. It's a very fair point. I want to toss over to Noah, but I should just point out, yes, Byron Howard and Jared Bush uh, directed the movie, but there is Hispanic influence in the writing staff. Uh, Cherries Kessler-Smith co-directed this as well. She's a Cuban background. I thought we might as well mention that. And I guess with that, we'll go back into ratings. Uh, thank you for enjoying our weird spoiler part of this. Uh, into Encanto. <laughs> Noah, your rating for Encanto. Completely Disney formula. Completely got me. Seven and a half out of ten. Seven point five out of, out of ten. I will play the music for as long as I've played Coco. And I believe even when a Coco song made it to my rap. So I'll be playing it for a while. Sam? Yeah, for me, I, I would probably say this is like a six, six and a half. I would actually, actually, Noah and I might have the same score. I might actually say seven and a half. Um, just because, again, it is genuinely fun. The characters are wonderful. And we mentioned before, if this does get a Disney Plus spinoff, it will probably be the best Disney Plus spinoff because it lends itself so well to, you know, little bite-sized storytelling of like this little one location in the house that, you know, just gets so expansive. And again, like I just had a lot of fun with it. It's not top tier Disney, certainly not top tier Disney this year, again, with Luca and Ryan existing. But you know what? I think it's a good time. It's in theaters right now. I'm sure probably most of you watched it over Thanksgiving, but if you haven't, give it a shot. So yeah, that has been Encanto. Uh, that's been our show, except that it's not because in one final twist a la Marvel style, we're talking Hawkeye because it came over Thanksgiving. Um, and also because we don't have any you know giant TV news for the next several weeks and we wanted to talk about it. Uh, in case you are somehow, if you're under the rock, this is the latest uh, Disney Plus MCU show. It is from showrunner Jonathan Igla, who's worked on a bunch of things. Uh, Mad Men, Bridgerton, I believe as well. Uh, this is the fifth? Disney Plus series, WandaVision, Falcon, Winter Soldier, Loki, What If, 
Yes, this is the fifth. Uh, it's just premiered uh, its first two episodes over Thanksgiving. Episode three just came out the week that we came out from this. It once again stars Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye. This takes place sometime after the events of Avengers Endgame. He is in the city with his family, and he essentially gets this revelation that the Ronin persona that he had taken part of during the block year and uh, the block period of years in Avengers Endgame is back in some capacity, and he knows that his family will be harmed by that, so he goes to investigate. And he finds Kate Bishop, uh, played by Haley Seinfeld. In the comics, Kate Bishop is the one to take over slash share the mantle of Hawkeye. In this show, she is a collegiate-age archer. Uh, her mom, played by Vera Farmiga, is the head of the security cons- consulting industry. Uh, her stepfather, soon to be, so to speak, uh, is played by Tony Dalton. Uh, they're kind of distant. They don't really trust her. They, you know, love her, obviously, but they, you know, see that she's a bit, you know, hot-headed, so to speak. And needless to say, through a series of revelations that I won't get into, she steals the Ronin suit. She runs into Quint Barton. They adopt, so to speak, the uh, the mascot of the series, Lucky the Pizza Dog, who is just, he sounds like, a dog who loves pizza. And essentially, it's just Clint and Kate kind of going off to solve this mystery of why the Ronin suit is back in play, you know, what the crime elements of New York's coming into play, and how much does Kate's family actually know about this? There's a whole subplot with Kate's dad about, you know, Maybe he was responsible for, you know, the auction that the Ronin suit was sold at. You know, there's kind of that angle to it, along with several surprises that we'll probably get into uh, later on. Noah, I want to go to you first. Uh, obviously, Hawkeye, since 2012's Avengers, uh, Jeremy Renner's been playing this character for almost a decade. But since then, it feels like there has been this recurring joke of, you know, Hawkeye isn't all that. So I'm wondering, did you at all buy into that going into this show? And what have you thought of at least the first half of the show? You know, as we started talking about Hawkeye, I looked over at my Pop Funko, my Funko Pop shelf uh, to, to my right, and I was looking for the Hawkeye uh, Funko, but actually I would never buy Hawkeye's Funko because he is, to me, the worst Avenger, but I will stand by that hill. I'll die on that hill. Um, so why, why was I not a Hawkeye fan? Because what is his novelty? What can he do? I don't know who I'm screaming at, but honestly- Stop screaming is- at me. <laughs> this series kind of defended him for me because his novelty is that he bears the weight of all of his Avenger level action as close to like a human, as you can imagine for like an MCU universe. And this is a TV show. So to me, like hearing aid and all seeing him just be kind of like over and tired of all the superhero crap that he's been doing over the years. What is his novelty? Like, that's what made me go, okay, I, I'm into it. Like, I'll follow you. Yes, I'm more interested in Haley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop, but I'll accept you as her trainer. You know, that's the kind of viewer I I am when I approach this series because, yeah, sorry, not the biggest Hawkeye fan. Um, But after episode three, I mean, this, I don't think that this show's missing the mark for me by any by any means i mean you know some of the bonuses are um kate bishop's excitement over just like the to her the grandiose of being like the archer superhero like do you have trick arrows like that's something that she asks about from like their first encounter and she cannot um like calm her obsession over trick arrows um she is a martial artist and we see that in a magnificent fight sequence that you get for like the first half of episode three and her character, I don't know. It's just, it's so refreshing. I, I don't know if it's just because of her, you know, performance ability or if it's because of uh, how they've written her and how they've really captured her as a character because I'm ready for her to join us and to be that that hilarious um, backline character who um, is giving us the quips and giving us the shots that we know she can make. Um, there, There is like suspension of belief, a plenty of that in the show. Like how much can Kate Bishop really get away with 
when it comes to like destroying her city um, before like that starts coming back on her. But for now, the Hawkeye series is a fun, you know, holiday centered um, series. And I'm not, I'm not giving it the same level of like, give me all the stakes of Thanos right now. No, like this is, this is a fun story of like, you know, the buddy cop that we were um, expecting since the trailer and so far it hasn't let me down. You know, I have good things to say, maybe a couple of bad things, but let's uncover my good things first. Uh, Sam. Yeah. I, I really like it so far, honestly. Um, I think that it's nice to finally see Hawkeye more kind of like what you're saying, give people a chance to love the guy because I feel like the writers knew what they were doing when they were making Hawkeye. And they're like, yeah, everybody knows that Hawkeye is like the least favorite out of the main original Avengers in the MCU. And they really riff on that where he's like, yeah, I tried to keep a low profile. Yeah. I'm kind of a ghost. Like that's my point. And so that kind of adds context to why maybe some of us thought he's not as impressive because he purposely puts himself out of the spotlight. So when you put Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton in the spotlight in his own show with his name. I just think it's really refreshing. And I kind of like this buddy cop dynamic, if you will, with, with him and Haley Steinfeld. I think that it's really fun. I like the two of them together. And I'm especially sold on their relationship in this third episode because I just feel like the first two, they're still kind of getting to know each other. Um, yes, Kate kind of screws things up in a way that you know forces her to meet Clint in unexpected situations. And she feels like a lot of it's her fault, which kind of low-key it is. But um, it's it's just interesting to see in this third episode more of an understanding on, on Clint because she only knows him as Hawkeye. So, again, that's really interesting for me as a dynamic. There are, like, little moments of the series so far that I think are hilarious. You know I can't go an episode without mentioning Avatar The Last Airbender in this stupid podcast of ours. I know we so, were going with that. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about how, like, that first episode, the Rogers musical, one, seems like an actually really legit idea. Two, reminded me very much of Avatar The Last Airbender's animated series when they see the musical about themselves. Or not the musical, but the play about themselves. It just reminded me of that, too, where he's sitting there like, well, this is... This is how it is, I guess. And so I that just reminded me of Avatar in the moment. But between that and I really enjoy Lucky because how could you not like a dog? And I love seeing Echo. I, I really want to see more about her. And overall, I think what this series is doing really well is depicting disability because, you know, coming from somebody who is not experiencing a disability, it's like I, um, I, I can only say so much on it. But I just feel like it's told in a way that's not really pandering. It's told in a way that's really crucial to the story without becoming what it is, if that makes any sense. Like it's just another challenge that yet our heroes have to face. And so I think it's told in a very nice, gentle way. So um, before I get into it, uh, you're, you're downplaying Rogers, the musical. It's too good not to exist. And I hope it does exist in some way, but yeah, as far as, you know, Hawkeye as a whole, I think I do want to touch on the disability thing because episode three, beyond being my favorite so far, I think what it does so well is do that scene between uh, between Maya, Echo, her codename, between Maya and Clint. You know, Clint has, you know, you know we kind of toss it over like he's lost a lot of his hearing because of, you know, everything. And they kind of have that great end joke of like, why'd you lose your hearing? A lot of things. Um, and there's that great scene between him and Maya where Maya is, you know, speaking through an interpreter. She's, you know, not using hearing aid. Clint is relying on it, but it's breaking on him. And I love how 
it touches on deaf and hard of hearing people as not a monolith. Like it would be so easy to make every character reliant on a hearing aid or every character reliant on sign language. And it's not, it's giving us two very different ideas of it, of one who is trying to, you know, quote unquote, fix what has been broken and one who is embracing their disability, you know, more properly. And I love that. Like it's, it's such a great dynamic between the two, especially in a year where we've gotten, you know, Eternals and Coda and, you know, we've been over the idea of, you know, deaf and hard of hearing representation on the show before. Uh, but you're right. The relationship between Kate and Clint is center in this. And, you know, I've always defended Clint Barton as a character. I've always liked the kind of, you know, jaded dad archetype that he makes himself out to be. I like the stuff that they do with this character, you know, overall when he got, where he pops up. But like Kate, Haley Steinfeld is owning this role. Like there is a good chance that when this series ends, I will be saying she is in my new top five favorite MCU characters. She's just so good. And she's so engaging as a character. She's a complete mess. She doesn't know what he's doing. And yet she's also incredibly talented and incredibly versatile at what she does. And so naturally fits into not just the tone of the MCU, but the ground level six of the MCU, which is another thing I really appreciate is that, you know, Falcon Winter Soldier was ground level, but it was also kind of a globe trotting, you know, spy thriller-esque. This is like in three blocks of New York and like it's small and right as of right now, there's no like, you know, super weapon or anything like that. So it's a lot of things that I really, really appreciate about the show on top of like, it's legitimately funny. And the, that car sequence in episode three is masterfully shot. Like, how did you do that? Um, but yeah, it's a series that I'm overall really enjoying so far. And I'm surprised at just how much I'm getting out of it. You know, what, what specific moments did you find that you, that you enjoyed? Can I ask that question? Do you both feel good? Yeah, you can do that. Oh yeah. And I think we could go just straight from there. And so it's, you know, for my favorite moment, goodness, I feel like it's in the third episode. There were so many good moments in the third episode. That's why, like, I felt like personally, first and second episodes, they were okay. Like, they were enough to keep me engaged, enough to make me want more of the series. But then this third one really sold me. I thought it was a really well done episode. And so, you know, at this point, Clint's uh, hearing aid was broken in the fight with Maya. And so he gets a phone call from his young younger son and, um, and, and Kate's trying to write on a notepad what he's saying and i just thought that was a really nice scene because again going back to what i mentioned it kind of brought things down to earth for her to realize he's human too he's got his problems i'm literally meeting my hero and i'm helping him out and and she doesn't take it in like in you know she doesn't take advantage of that she finds this new understanding because you could argue as like a college student in the first episode she really didn't think much about her consequences or too much about other people in general so it's just refreshing my, that was my favorite scene. Hey, need me some more Linda Cardellini. Am I saying her last name right? Good. Yes. Uh, yeah, need me some more of her. Um, Vera Farmiga is in this as Kate Bishop's mother. And um, I, I think in the beginning I didn't, I was like, oh, is she only going to be in here for a little bit? Um, and maybe that's because she played like the, she was playing the young, the mother of young Kate Bishop. But then as we are introduced to adult Kate Bishop, she takes on like a different role Um and I liked it, but I don't know how important her character is going to become. We do have like teaser still, like teaser images of the next episode involving um, her new her new partner uh, who has inher- not inherited, but has bid on the original Ronin like collapsible blade. And that's the blade that he points at Clint at the end of episode three. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but a highlight for me, I would say is that feeling we had watching Kate scramble in one of her first like alley fights. Uh, it was, I remember it might've taken place in the streets, but it was like at midnight and she's wearing the Ronin costume and you get the feeling that, you know, that she's not an amateur because she is trained, but she's not an Avenger. 
you know? So we don't have that same kind of fight style. I don't know, like that, that to me felt like a really cool moment where we're like, oh, like, and then, and then the Avengers shows up, like, and, and I can't wait to, for Kate to get to that level, especially knowing that Yelena is going to be making an appearance. Like we know how Yelena fights. She's a widow. So let's try and see how that ranks up against uh, Clint and up against Kate. One of the things for me that I really wanted Phase 4 of the MCU to do and that they kind of gotten into and they're, they're probably going to get a lot into in the next couple series is the idea of characters like Kate, like eventually, you know, Kamal Khan, like if we get Miles Morales eventually, to explore the idea of, yes, the MCU is very much rooted in our real world, you know, physics and, you know, ideas and things like that. But it's also a universe where, like, in 2012, aliens invaded New York. And, like, we're in 2019 or 2024, I should say, where, like, half the population was fighting for the sake of Earth and the entire universe. Like, what do you do as a kid growing up with that? And that's why I adore the opening scene to episode one so much, because it's that idea that Spider-Man Homecoming was kind of tackling of, you know, ground level people experiencing an alien invasion from giant, you know, sea whales, you know, that kind of thing. And I love that we essentially get to see Kate seeing, you know, seeing that idea of Hawkeye, who we, who Noah, you touched on earlier was that thing of like, what does he provide? He provides a humanity and like a brokenness and a frig- and a fragility to the character that none of the other Avengers, even Widow, really have at that time. And so for Kate to see that character with bows and air, you know, that Lion Age of Ultron that applies here is like, there's robots attacking the city, there's a city flying in the sky, and then I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. And like, I think that pertains to that scene where none of that should be happening. And yet that's the idea of Clint's a hero. And I love that Kate is able to take that and completely just go her own direction with it quick short fun question what's your favorite trick arrow well we haven't seen that many so far um so far though because we saw like at least a handful within 10 minutes <laughs> and, and there's that joke in the car of like this one's too dangerous this one uh, well what were those arrows um the easy one is the pin particle arrow it's just such a cool concept that one surprised me so much, and I thought that was really a fun tease. But I'd say probably my favorite one was getting the the. It was almost Spider Man like, like that the whip that kind of came out and grabbed all the trees to the front. Yeah, 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 I thought that was pretty cool. I never would think about making a trick arrow do something like that. <laughs> and that'll do it for episode fifteen of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to our all review special edition. Let us know if you want to see more of these because at least in the next month and a half, we're probably going to be we're going to we're probably going to have to at some point. Go check us out on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, at Plot Devices. Show, show us if you're in your wrapped for this year or your recap, whatever the one on Apple Music is, whatever it is. But go check us out there. Go follow us there. New episodes will drop every Sunday night slash Monday morning, depending on when I get to editing them. I am only human and I apologize. Uh, you can also follow us on social media at Instagram, at Plot Devices, at Twitter, at Twitter as well as Plot Devices and Facebook as well. I don't know why I said them all. I'm just doing it. Sam, over to you. I want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, what do you got going on in your life and uh, what's going on? Yes, absolutely. I feel like I've seen too many movies to count. I've been going to two or three screeners a week, so it's been kind of a lot, but all good stuff. It's all really exciting. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for all sorts of exciting things. Just this past week, I saw Nightmare Alley and I saw Don't Look Up, that Netflix movie that's got like a stack cast. And honestly, both movies had a stack cast. So you could find all my shenanigans and things I'm up to at um, Twitter at S underscore Inquirvaya, or you could find me on Instagram at SamIam520. And I'm ecstatic to hear how Meryl Streep breaks in the, in the halls of fictional presidents everywhere. But until then, Noah <laughs> Guzman, you're, uh, where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? 
Anybody can find me online, uh, Xbox Series X, playing Halo Infinite, the new multiplayer beta. I cannot wait for new maps to drop and the campaign mode to come as well in the next week. But speaking movies, speaking the Plot Devices pod, you can find me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. And our um, handle for our podcast is Plot Devices Pod. There is a couple, there are a couple accounts out there that are like at Plot Devices or like at Plot Device Pod. And it's not us. So make sure you look for the banner that says Plot Devices Pod. Um, we're very colorful. We're flashy. You'll find the account. And we're very pink. We're very pink. And I, I'm working on, I just posted my review for Wolf today for ASU Odyssey. I also tweeted about it. So please go check that out. Let me know your thoughts. I love to have a conversation about any movie that I watch um, and review. And secondly, I watched Cyrano a couple days ago, and that's not actually releasing till late January. So I got to be tight lipped about it. But let me tell you, there is no doubt that that is going to receive some award nomination and maybe even take home one of them or a few. Uh, it's beautiful. It's magnificent. I can't wait to share more thoughts, but thank you for joining us today on our Quince. It is a pleasure to be here for 15 episodes. That's true. It is our Quince. Congrats to us. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Go follow my band at Killbox underscore music. We actually have a gig at the Rebel Lounge December 28th. Uh, ourselves, Reppin' of Pride, Natural Flavors, and Practically People. Tickets are on sale at ctickets.us. If you guys can go check that out, we'd be really appreciative of it. And new music is obviously coming out uh, very soon. As for reviews, I have my review of Encounter starring Riz Ahmed and Octavia Spencer coming out next week. Uh, it's dropping this week on Amazon. We'll have it next week on the podcast as well. And tune in also next week, not just for our episode. I figure I can announce it now. We're doing a Spider-Man ranked special uh, mini-sode. Ta-da! Yes, this is our special announcement. Uh, we're going to be ranking all the Spider-Man movies on a special mini-episode in honor of No Way Home, uh, which will be on the following show, but can't wait to see you guys for that as well. Tune in again, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, at Plot Devices. For myself, for Noah Guzman, for Samantha and Kravaya, this has been Plot Devices, our King's Day in honor of Encanto and everything else, and we will see you guys next time. 